0: And now, today's podcast episode. Welcome
1: back to the Almost Awakened podcast. I'm your host, Bill Real, and I'm grateful for the chance to be with you today. Today, we're going to have a really fun conversation. I've got a friend of mine, Suzette, who has spent the last year in prison, and it's going to make for an interesting conversation as her and I have been preparing for this uh, interview and... Uh, the things that we wanted to cover and talk about, and what we wanted to do is uh, ensure that the listeners that you got to feel for what prison is like and what kinds of um, observations that Suzette made there and and how this system works and functions and how the people within this system um, operate and and Suzette by all means introduce yourself to whatever degree you want to tell us whatever kind of little intro that, that you want to, uh, and then we'll jump into talking about life behind bars.
2: Great. Thanks, Bill. I'm happy to be here too. Um, so I was, um, I, I uh, pleaded guilty to a charge of wire fraud in November of 2018. And I was sentenced, um, in a federal court in Alexandria, Virginia, um, in February of 2019 to 15 months in a women's federal prison camp. I was in a camp and um, I served just over a year. So I went in in March of 2019 and just got out in April of this year. Um, So, yeah, I, I learned a lot, had some crazy experiences, some, you know, funny experiences, some heart rending experiences. And I'm just looking forward to talking to you about what my life was like for this past year. Again, I was in a camp in the federal level. There's three levels, you know, and so I was in a a low. Actually, I was at Alderson Federal Prison Camp in West Virginia, which is where Martha Stewart was um, many moons ago. So the curtains
1: there are fantastic.
2: Oh, yeah, the curtains are so great. We don't have (laughs) curtains in prison. Are you kidding me?
1: (laughs) So the the first thing I want to ask, because whenever I see – prison portrayed. And we'll get to the second question I want to ask is the difference between a prison camp and a prison. But I want to set up the first question, which is when I watch um, prison being portrayed on TV or in movies, it's always that first day where it feels like all these guys get on a bus and uh, the prisoners show up essentially at the prison. And there now is this accounting Um, you have to change your clothes, you have to get your supplies, you have to be shown the place you're going to sleep. And immediately there is some level of intimidation that happens that begins to tell you as the person who's entering the prison world that, that who's in charge and how things are going to work. Maybe tell us that first day as you enter this space, uh, what that was like.
2: Sure. I'll tell my experience on my first day. However, I want to, Um, just let people know that my experience was not as common as most people. I was a self-surrender, which means that I was at home between the time I was sentenced and the time I came to prison. I put my affairs in order. I packed up my stuff. I was driven by friends to the prison and self-surrendered there. Most of the people that I knew there, that was not the case. They were arrested put in a jail, a local jail, waited for the, you know, and so they were like either flown or transported in shackles to the prison. So I just want to make people aware there's a couple different ways to go into prison. And mine was certainly scary, (laughs) but also maybe a little softer than some of my friends who were literally like armed guards, shackles, driven there, you know, um, and transported. So for me, I was dropped off. I, you know what, now that I think about it, I think it was a one o'clock self-surrender. So we pulled up to the gates and I told my friends, I said, I am not crying. I am not looking back. I'm going to get this thing done. So I'm just walking in. Don't even hug me. Don't talk to me. I, you pick up a phone and you say, you know, my name, what your name is and that you're there to self-surrender. And then the guard comes out of the gate, picks me up. And I did, I did not look back. I just got in the truck and we drove into the gates. You know, in Alderson, um, there's not there's not a big fence that goes around it. There's no barbed wire. It looks very much like kind of a small college campus. It's an open campus um, facility. But anyway, they put you in intake. <clears throat> I think the hardest part, because at first you're just interfacing with the guards and the staff. You don't you've not met any of the other inmates that you're going to be spending the year with. Is that they take your clothes? I mean, that for me, I think was the hardest part because they strip you down absolutely bare naked and they're standing there watching you the whole time you're taking all your clothes off. And it's like, they're stripping you of like this outside person. And then they're giving you like prison clothes. And when I stepped my feet into those prison clothes, whoo! I have to say I almost shed a tear, but I, I held on and I was like, Nope, I watched Shawshank Redemption. I'm not crying this. And um, anyway, so that was hard. And also, they give you men's clothes. You basically wear men's clothes in a women's prison. And I feel like at least initially I felt like my femininity was stripped away as well. Um, So you're wearing, you know, khaki color, kind of scratchy khaki pants and shirts. And um, you know, they even button the wrong way, like men's clothes. So you just feel like you're wearing baggy clothes and they're, of course, they're ugly. Um, And then, so that part, it was a little intimidating, a little scary, but you know, you, can I ask it was you, right. was,
1: was, it just, was, it, was it just female guards as this strip down happens, which obviously is part, in part um, a precaution to make sure that a, pres- a person entering the prison doesn't have any th- object on them, right? You have to yep. essentially be searched. And yep. Is it just female guards that are participating in this or are there, is there men standing there watching this occur as well?
2: Yeah. We had male and female guards, but um, we were never strip searched or touched by any men. The Only gotcha. a female guard was there when we were being stripped. And not, when I ever, I would leave like the, like the visitor center, we were also stripped out after that. And that was always a female guard, but we did have male guards, but um, but we weren't, I was never touched by a male guard. And I don't know of any real stories where people were. But anyway, that was the hardest part. And then when I met the other women, I was like, okay, okay, maybe I can survive this. <laughs> you know?
1: Yeah, so. yeah. So um, the strip search—you strip, you, you take the clothes. Um, yep. What? Like, do they do they show you where you're going to stay? Are the conversations friendly? Does it feel does it feel standoffish, or is is there a level of like? respecting that you're now going to about to enter this hard thing. Like how are these interactions going and where do they take you after you, you put the the outfit on?
2: Yeah. The outfit. Um, so I would, the guards were neither friendly nor unfriendly that first day. They were just sort of abrupt. That's probably the best word. They were just abrupt and getting stuff done, you know, and, the interesting thing, so you know, after I was processed and, and had the clothes, so again, I'm a self-surrender, so I'm by myself and I wasn't with other people. And so they they give you this sort of mesh bag that has like your blanket and a couple of towels that I mean the color of baby diarrhea. I kid you not, it's that green-brown color. Um, and and they give you this kind of bag of like I think a toothbrush and and they're like, and they oh, you have a badge. They give you your badge. You have to wear a badge around your neck the whole time that has a little card that has your picture and your ID number. So you put that on and then they literally walked me out the door and they pointed up this hill and they said, you live up there. You're going to be in building a unit four. So just go on up the hill and just go and they'll, and I was like, just walk up there by myself. I thought that was so weird. Like I was I mean, they said yeah. So I'm like, okay. So here I am, all by myself, with this bag over my shoulder. It's a, it was March, end of March. It was kind of a sunny day, and I'm walking up this hill, thinking I'm all alone. I thought I would be escorted by guards the whole time, but no. I'm just by myself. I'm walking up this hill, and I get up to the top of the this sort of hill where. Um, the, the, the housing unit, there's two housing units. And in between them, there's this green area called the yard. And there's a track that goes around it. And there's picnic tables. And because it was like, you know, a sunny afternoon, maybe three, four o'clock. Actually, it wasn't four o'clock. It was three o'clock because they have a count at four. And I walk up, I'm like, oh my gosh, am I in, am I at college? Like everyone was wearing like these gray shorts, gray t-shirts. They're laughing, they're braiding each other's hair. They're walking around the track. And I was like, is this prison? What's going on? People like kind of look like they're doing okay. And I don't know what I expected, but they were just kind of living life and hanging out. And they saw that I was new because you have these, you don't have your boots. You have these blue shoes. And so if you see people with blue shoes, you know, they're new. So they were like, Hey, welcome to Alderson. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is kind of friendly. So anyway, they show me where my building is. I go inside the building and of course, I walk in, I got this bag and my blue shoes. And so everyone knows I'm new. And a bunch of women just came right up to me there. I mean, I didn't see any staff, just a bunch of, you know, other inmates came up and they were like, Hey, Hey, you new? what's your name? They don't ask what your crime is. I always say, how you lo- how long are you here for? How long are you here for? How long are you with us? That's what they want to know. And they were like, let me show you where your bed is. They're looking at my paperwork and they're pointing out, maybe you have these bunk beds. They're just pretty, what you would imagine like a girls camp kind of thing. And They kind of helped me get all set up. They showed me my bed and and helped me make my bed and just kind of got me settled in that first day.
1: Isn't it interesting in society, whatever um, different kinds of people there are, that those same kinds of people exist on the inside, which is there are helpers, right? There are people who are trying to keep everything running smoothly and trying to make everyone feel at home, to some degree so that so that the drama is reduced, um, there are helpers everywhere, and even on the inside of prison
2: yeah absolutely absolutely we did there was some, about three people on the unit that were kind of assigned quote unquote to like watch out for the new people and mentor them. But I mean, a lot of people came up and they're like, hey, do you need anything? And I'm thinking, I don't know, do I need anything? I had no idea what I needed and what I didn't. I said, well, this bra fits terribly, you know, can I help it? They're like, oh, we'll get, they'll go get that tomorrow. And people brought me stamps so I could mail a letter home to my family. People like brought me soap dishes. They literally like put shoes on my feet so I could take a shower with, you know, flip flops on. And, and it was really a, really a gesture of much kindness when I first arrived and And really helpful. So shout out to all you ladies in A4.
1: (laughs) Love it. What, what was your, uh, living quarters or sleeping quarters? Like what, I mean, obviously this has to be one of the first things you're introduced to is the place that you're going to be resting for this year when, when you're away from everybody and not in the yard. Um, what, what is that like?
2: Yeah. So, um, when you move in, I moved into my room a couple days later. So they don't have cells at a camp. So There's no like locking door on a cell like that. It's more like a big dormitory. Um, and so they call them cubes. Um, and so I had a cube and had a, a, a person I shared the cube with called a bunkie because we had bunk beds. Um, so they just have this big dormitory room, cement floors, and then the Cubes were divided by cinder block walls, which were maybe five foot five height. So you could literally, if you were on the top bunk, see out over the entire dorm. But as you're walking down the little hallways, it gives a little sense of privacy. So no doors, just these cubes with, um, like kind of an open, an opening for a door, which is great because there's no cells, I mean, no bars, but also not great because anybody can walk in your room and there's like no privacy at all. Um, and so it's, uh, eight feet by 10 feet. There's a bunk bed, metal bunk bed. Um, there's two lockers, one for your bunkie, one for you, uh, a little desk that you can ride at with a light over it and a trash can. And you have a foot locker too that goes under the bed. So you can put your stuff in a foot locker and in a locker on the wall. And that's it. I was, I was in a cube that had a window. So the cubes on the outside of the building have little windows, not very big, with a shade, you know, so you could see out. So I used my, actually, my friends in prison used to tease me because I used to like to sit in the windowsill and like, just look out. And I used to eat peanut butter all the time. Cause it was, I don't know, protein and it was good tasting. <laughs> and so I'd sit in the windowsill and like, look out at the yard and they're like, what are you doing sitting there in your windowsill? Like you're in some fantasy land or something. And I was like, just leave me alone and let me look out the window if I want to, <laughs> you know? So, but not all the cubes had windows, but mine did.
1: Yeah, I wanna I wanna ask too. Like I'm looking right now at a picture of one of the um like like this space, this eight by ten space with the bunk beds and um mm-hmm. I see a little counter, I see the window with the shade. Mm-hmm. And the thing I always notice about a prison setup is the bed has about an 18 inch mattress wide, right? Cause <laughs> yeah. space, you know, you don't deserve a King size bed. You deserve no, an 18 inch wide mattress. So just, you know, just to touch base with that, like how hard is it to sleep when you don't have a lot of room to spread out?
2: Yeah. Probably get um, used to it. Don't you? You know, I, I had an okay time sleeping. I never had a super hard time sleeping, but yeah, it's like you can't roll over in bed. You literally have to lift yourself up and roll over. The mattresses are not very comfortable. So every time somebody would leave, if they had a good mattress, man, people were on that and they would like switch mattresses, right? So they would like run down to the person who was leaving and they were like, okay, you're leaving at what time tomorrow morning? And they were like, get out so I can have your mattress. And people were switching mattresses all the time, trying to find one that was a little thicker or, you know, whatever. But not super comfortable and people did different things to make them you know a little more comfortable sometimes they'd stuff cardboard underneath the mattress to kind of like so the springs you know would give a little bit um make it a little harder if that was not allowed and so if the guards wanted to be mean um they just take the cardboard out get rid of that cardboard um sleeping with one pillow was probably the hardest thing for me at first because you know i just was not used to that um what else? Sleeping up high. I slept on the top bunk for most of the time I was there. And uh, that was kind of weird at first because you're like, oh, gosh, whatever, roll off this thing. But I never did. No one ever No one ever fell off that I can remember. Climbing up and down. That was tough because um, it's, you know, it's really metal and hard. So you can hurt yourself. People would crochet little um, like pads to put on the ladders so that they didn't cut their legs. Um, you know, it was it was hard until you kind of adjust, you can have blankets crocheted or extra pillows crocheted, but that takes time to figure out, you gotta buy the yarn and you gotta get someone to crochet it for you. But you finally settle in usually to a, a, like the blankets that you like and the pillow that you like, but not super comfortable, but it's okay. That's how I say it 's okay yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> the uh, the food i 'm always you know every place i 'm sure is a little different, but i 've done my own research long prior to this conversation with you mm-hmm. about prison food. in fact, I put a Facebook post up maybe a year ago or so where I was talking about how um, the government through its prison systems have tried to significantly reduce cost, mm-hmm. and that the foods that a lot of prisons serve are really kind of bare bones and provide kind of the bare minimum of nutrition. Um, tell us a little bit about the the menu uh, at this place um, and what some of the experiences were like with, with how food was handled.
2: Sure. Um, I just want to say one more thing about the living arrangements and that is there's a serious lack of color. Like it's so drab. I just want to like the clothes are brown and khaki and the walls are beige and there's and the blankets are brown. So just want to throw out that, that there's a lot, there's just no color in prison. Yeah. I'm One looking at, I'm looking at that out.
1: room. It's, it's, it's just uh, different shades of off white and uh, <laughs> kind of a brown diarrhea, green blanket I'm seeing.
2: Yeah, um, yeah. And
1: There's like a yellow little countertop connected to the wall. Yeah.
2: Yeah. That's like a little desk. So it's just, just, I I remember when I got home, like I was blown away by how much color there was, but anyway, just a little note that's just, it's really, really drab food. Um, I I thought Alderson did okay on food. Um, I hate to say anything positive about the staff, but, but, um, I think that they did what they could with the budget they had. Um, so lots and lots of starch people tend to gain weight in prison because there's the, there's a lot of rice, potatoes, starchy foods, a lot Pastas, of things, a things lot like of that. Pa- yeah. Pasta, a lot of pasta, every, every salad you have was like a pasta salad with mayonnaise or something. Um, and a lot of like in the morning, a lot of sugar, you know, like donuts, frozen donuts that they would warm up, you know, and, um, thing, you know, cakes in the morning for breakfast, like breakfast cakes. Um, no, really, no fresh vegetables. That's probably the thing I miss the most. They usually had what they called a salad, which was iceberg lettuce with some carrots sprinkled in and tons of dressing, you know? So they we had iceberg lettuce most days, but we didn't really have very many fresh vegetables. We always had a vegetable, but it was canned. So all canned vegetables, right? And mostly canned fruits too with the heavy syrup. Um, and so... Um, we could take a piece of fruit, either an apple or an orange, back to our dorm with us. Um, so we did have apples and oranges that were fresh. And I have to say they they tried to do a fairly... Um, for, I mean, they fed 800 women three hot meals a day. So, you know, that's no easy task to do on any budget. But we always had a meat item like a stew or a piece of chicken or a hamburger, um, meatloaf, lasagna. And then we had a lot of starch choices and then a canned vegetable and then often this sort of iceberg lettuce. And lunch was the biggest meal usually that people attended um breakfast sometimes and then dinner and if it was good people would go down so i mean it wasn't great and it was very cafeteria style very rushed like you had rushed to eat um but i i have to say it also wasn't horrid um inmates did all the work you know inmates cooked it's a working camp so the cooks which is mostly people they were heating up stuff there was more than they were cooking but they they had cooks they had servers they had the people who did the dishes you know cleaned up the trays and all of that um, but the cafeteria was always an interesting place to be because that's where most I mean especially at lunchtime with all the women are down there and you see your friends and you see what's going on and who's dating who and who's fighting with who and It's a little society unto itself, you know, but anyway, I digress, but the food was okay, but not fresh. That's probably the thing I noticed most. It's just not a lot of fresh food, but I, and they have a budget. I think they do. And holidays, they always did right by us on holidays. They always made a nice big meal on holidays. We often got ice cream or some kind of like sweet thing to eat. So, and some people just never went down the cafeteria. You can buy food on commissary, uh, really salty processed food, but, um, but they could, you could make food for yourself up on the unit so you didn't have to walk down. It was probably a third of a mile maybe to walk from the dorms down to the cafeteria area. We did a lot of walking.
1: Gotcha. Which probably, we, you know, I want to jump back here for a moment because this was something we were going to ask, but a prison camp versus a standard prison, you've already explained like the sleeping quarters are open, essentially. Everybody can kind of wander around and visit with other people in their quarters and it's not uh, a cell, it's not a a locked door, um, but that's one facet. What else kind of makes a prison camp different from a standard prison?
2: Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know all the different reasons. I only know the stories I heard. Um, I do believe that they, they can't walk around the campus area as freely. Like they're what they call controlled moves. So they would say, okay, it's like 10 o'clock. You have 10 minutes to move to whatever building you want to go to next, your work facility, your classes. So you can't just be walking around. You have to like only move at controlled times. That's how I understand it anyway. And I, I, don't know this for sure but i think that the cafeteria area is a little more controlled as well i think you have less time to eat they might even have fewer people in the cafeteria area at once i'm not totally sure but i think that it's just more controlled as far as your movements are restrained um and then of course you're locked into a cell rather than having sort of an open area and i i'm a, and i know that when they go onto what they call lockdown um like if there's a fight or they're trying to you know find drugs or something they they can like literally lock you in your cell they call 23 and 1 23 hours in one hour out these are things i've heard of so i may be getting them wrong but they can literally keep you in your cell for 23 hours a day and let you out one hour to shower or make a phone call or be outside or something so we just had a lot more i think freedom of movement throughout the campus yeah so,
1: that, yeah that seems like that's the distinction um how do you keep yourself busy? Like what, so on a daily basis, uh, what, what are the kinds of things that you do either, you know, are there, are there jobs that exist? Like, how do you get those jobs? What are the kinds of jobs you get? And then in terms of like fun, what are the, you, ta- you just mentioned classes a little bit ago. What kind of classes can you take? What, what kind of access to activities to keep your brain busy, uh, are there? So work and, and learning and play, what are the kind of things that go on?
2: Well, I'll start with, with jobs. So Alderson is a working camp and, and I'm not sure about other prison facilities, how much the, the inmates work, but at ours, everybody has, you have to have a job. You can't like not w- have a job. So, but those jobs could be as simple as taking out the trash on the weekends <laughs> to working in the warehouse every single day, eight to five. So generally in the mornings, you have to be at your place of employment of your job, quote unquote, around seven thirty, eight 8 o'clock, probably 8 o'clock. So you've got people who work in, on the unit in what they call cottage maintenance. So they're cleaning the showers, cleaning the floors, emptying the trash cans. You've got girls down learning to drive forklifts, um, pulling stuff off the trucks as they come in, working in the warehouse. You've got cooks, dishwashers, people that mow the lawns, anything that's landscaped in the winter, shoveling, in the you know in the summer mowing lawns. Let's see, we had a... There's like kind of a the HVAC plumbing people where they were sort of students and they were learning those kinds of things. You could work in like the garage. You could work in the education building too and like teach classes and tutor GED students. You could work in the laundry. Um, the, the staff and the guards mostly just carried the keys and let people in and out of locked rooms. Um, they didn't do like the daily work. The inmates did all that. So <clears throat> depending on what your job is, you usually went to work, you know, and there was various levels of boredom involved with your working day, depending on what your job was. Um, or, and then people move around to jobs. There's always constant jockeying for, hey, is there a place open in laundry? Because you get you get paid at four different levels. The starting level, just when you're first new in the dishroom, you make $5 a month. And then as you go into the jobs, you make either $0.12, $0.17, $0.29, or $0.40 an hour. And um, the $0.40 an hour jobs are pretty rare, and they're mostly down to food services, and you have to kind of level up into the top level. And there's a lot of pulling people out of those jobs, getting them fired, getting into those jobs, lots of, who got fired today. People are always getting fired or quitting or moving around, but there's a lot of jockeying for jobs and trying to get something that fits into what you want to accomplish in prison. Whether you want to just chill out for the next year, you might want to empty the trash. If you really want to like just be busy, go work in the laundry. You know, people, it kind of depends, but it's it's tough because you have to get approved by the staff member. You have to get signatures. And it's kind of a little bit about who you know, if another inmate can give you like a thumbs up to get into jobs. I mean, I tried to get into education the entire time I was there, never could get in. I just didn't know the right people. I heard rumors they didn't want educated people in in the education department because they were smarter than the staff or whatever. I don't know. But it's just certainly the doctors that were there in prison were never allowed to work in the healthcare facility. So, you know.
1: Right, right. That's what great. were some so of the jobs, jobs? What were some of the jobs you held, and what was what was your first job?
2: Well, the first job is the same job everybody holds, which is in the dish room. So you're out, you're working eight hours, mostly bored to death because you have to just sit down there between meals, and you um, you wipe the tables down when people get up from the meals, and then you run the dishes and the silverware through and bring them back out again. So yeah, that's dish room is where everybody starts. You got to be down there at five a.m. So you got to get up at the crack of dawn. There's always a little crew, you know, that, that everyone's waking each other up. Get up, get up. you Don't want to be late. If you're late, whew, get in trouble. They have various ways of punishing you. And, um, and you walk down the hill in the dark at night and uh, start the dishroom. Um, and then I worked uh, very briefly in the warehouse. I did work um, in a place called veggie prep where they do the vegetable prep and, chop the vegetables. I worked in what they call detail cleaning, which was an afternoon job where you like went around the corners and cleaned and kind of got ready for inspection. And I also worked in the showers. There's a lot of work scrubbing showers. Um, So those are some of the jobs I had.
1: So now in terms of like uh, the education that you're talking about, these classes or chances to to learn, what access did the folks in uh, in this facility or this campus or this camp yeah. what what kinds of things could you and, and could you choose what things to take what kind of things were accessible and what kind of real education or learning is going on
2: so there's always a waiting list for everything. I, I didn't find there to be that many useful classes um, or education. What I can say about prison is you can generally learn what you want to learn if you want to go get it, and learn it. You can usually find a way to get a book in or something, but it's not. They are not making it easy, and they're not handing it to you. So we, you, you can start with. Of course, there's tons of education. There's a lot of exercise classes. Um, there's a there's a recreation center, and so I did a yoga class. I went to yoga every day pretty much while I was there. And you can take all kinds of aerobics classes and yoga classes and different things like that. So they did have a lot to do there. Now there was also like. Um, the recreation classes, like beading or card making, things like that, and crocheting or knitting. And a lot of people did that. I never really got involved with that. I was only there for a year and I just had other things I wanted to do. So I did not take a lot of the crafting classes, but people do. And there's usually a waiting list to get in and um, you can get into those. There were some music classes. And I, I, I saw people like learning guitar and things. I didn't really participate, but there were some music classes, mostly guitar. And but the inmates taught these. So these are classes that inmates are teaching, the yoga classes, the guitar classes. Um, as far as the education building goes, if you don't have a GED or you don't have a high school diploma, you are going to school. That's your job. You will go to school I heard a variety of people talking about whether that school was good or not. They certainly were not able to handle learning disabilities from what I could tell. And again, it's if you wanted to get your GED and you wanted to get in there and learn, you know, you could get tutors and people to teach you and you could take your GED test. If you didn't really want to learn, then you probably sat around in school and rolled your eyes a little bit. Um... They had classes, I took a creative writing class, which I really liked, and they had an outside person come in and teach it, um, and that was a great class. Um, I got on the, you, you hear about the classes, you jump on the waiting list, and then they let you in. They did have a, like an Alcoholics Anonymous, it was called Celebrate Recovery class, and then they had a variety of school-type classes, math. But all of it, I mean, it was not interesting to me because I had already been through school, but, you know, a lot of people took them if they wanted to. If you wanted to learn, they had some resources, but I really didn't feel like if you have a learning disability or you don't really know how to learn, you're not going to get very far. You either kind of have to pick it up and get people to help you or... So, that's what you know. The classes were all about. I'm trying to think if I'm missing anything when it comes to classes. If many of my prison friends are listening, they're probably like thinking, "Why don't you talk about this?" And I can't think of any other classes. But education was closed a lot. I would say it was only open maybe four days a week. And you know, if it was closed, you don't go to class. So
1: yeah, yeah. What about uh, what about play, recreation, sports? What what kind of things did the did uh, the the women there do to kind of occupy their time and have fun?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, there's, of course, um, everyone goes outside and walks around and there's a lot of talking hair braiding. Oh my gosh. The hair braiding, a lot of that. And then crocheting people used to say you either you either crochet or you go gay. Um, so people did a lot of crocheting and knitting on the inside <laughs> and um, they, a lot of reading too. People read a lot. Um, in their bunks, I did a lot of reading myself, um, and writing letters, there's a TV room, um, and you can buy a radio and listen to TV, so you can watch TV, you can play cards, play games, of course the game room and the TV room are the same room, so it's always very noisy in there, and people are, you know, often fighting over chairs, and TV shows, and things like that, so sometimes you get a little crazy, they had sports too, the, probably the biggest, most kind of fun sport was softball, So in the warmer months, they had a kind of a gravelly, sort of gravelly, somewhat um, grassy uh, baseball diamond. And so the units would play against each other. And so if you weren't playing, you'd often go down, sit in the bleachers, cheer for your team. There's always rivalries between different units. Everyone knew who the good sports players was. That was always fun. I didn't play the sports, but I really enjoyed watching the baseball games, or softball games. They had volleyball, outdoor and indoor volleyball, and they had a small bit basketball and people would go and sit around the basketball court and cheer for the teams. And um, we did have a, a woman in there who had played college basketball and it was really good. And she often did the umpiring. Again, we, we refereed ourselves and there was always sort of a staff around to monitor, but all the things were basically put together by the inmates, but it was fun. We had fun watching volleyball games and basketball and softball and then people just did the things they liked. They read or crocheted or talked to their friends or played cards, watched TV. So that's kind of what we did for fun. If, and if it's like a little society, right? It's yeah. old, oh, they had church too. So people would go to church on the weekends and sing and, and all that. And, um, and it's like a little society and you get to know each other. And there's you know, fights or friendships and things like that that develop. So.
1: If, so let's say you're athletic. Let's say you you want to play on the softball team. And during the months that the softball games are being played, do you have access to like play once a week? I mean, how how often are people able to do the thing they like to do?
2: Most days, if the recreation building is open and there's at least one staff member at the quote unquote recreation building, then you have access to all the recreation. You can, you can go down and play baseball every day, most days. If the recreation was closed, you wouldn't be allowed to, because there was no no quote unquote staff to oversee it. But, you know, a lot of people would go down and practice and just bat the ball around. There was games three times a week during that. So if you like, like I like to do yoga. That's what I like to do. And I did aerobics on the weekends. Usually there was kind of these classes and I did yoga almost every day if it was open. So if you like to do something, you had quite a bit of access to do it, but you know, you're just, you're limited to the They don't have very good gear, of course, you know, and they don't have very good shoes to be playing sports in. And if you're a crocheter, they don't have very many different colors of yarn and you have to buy the yarn. If you have to have money to do that. And um, you don't have, unless someone mails you a book, you don't have access to like patterns, you know, so there's limitations to the thing you're doing. I mean, I did yoga in a pretty sad looking room and they had yoga mats, but I ended up buying one of my own when I got some money. Um, but anyway, you have access to do what you want. It's just that you don't have access to like the resources to make that thing very big. It's sort of a small scope. So,
1: just a quick question because I won't remember to ask it later. But you just mentioned the mat, and you bought your own. When you exited the prison camp, did 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 you did somebody vie for your mat? Like your mat had to have been newer and in better shape than the mats that were accessible to to just the general population. Yeah. Um, d- when you left, were all of your things that you didn't necessarily need to take with you where they vied over and fought over and <laughs> people trying to get them from you? And
2: Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, when someone's leaving, their friends know about it, you know, six months in advance and they're already like walking in saying, can I have your earrings? Can I have your clock? Can I have your fan? You know, blah, blah, blah. So right. um, for sure, people are definitely. And I was happy. Some people sold their stuff. I was happy to give it most of it away. Um, I try to think if I sold anything or if I just gave it away, but people were claiming stuff well, well in advance. So, you know, and it just got redistributed, got redistributed and redistributed, you know, over and over again. I was going to say the fan is a big thing. I didn't mention this living quarter. So because it's noisy and people are talking and people like turn their fans on for white noise as much as for anything else. So a lot of times you just hear this all the time with all these fans going so people can drown out the noise of other people. But gotcha. yeah, we definitely vie for stuff.
1: Gotcha. For um, sure. you, you, know, you mentioned you were there for one year. Mm-hmm. Um, what was kind of the average sentence of the folks there and what were some of the longer terms that people were serving time there for?
2: Mm-hmm. I had one of the shortest sentences. Um, yeah, when they heard me I had 15 months, they were like, oh, short timer. Any, anybody under two years was considered a short timer. I would say most of the people that I knew were somewhere around five to seven-ish years, five to seven years in prison, you know. Um, and then there were people like, people like me that had, you know, less than five years. And then there were people who had 15, 16, 17 years. Um, it's a long time. Um up to 20, 20 years was the longest I ever knew of anyone. Um, but most people were right around, I would say that six, seven, eight year mark. Um, so that was the, the, the time.
1: And, and those that time. were serving longer sentences, what were, what were some of the things they had done? I mean, obviously at some point there's got to be those conversations, right? What is yeah, something yeah, for?
2: Sure. So there were really... Uh, like four crimes that would end up in Alderson, nonviolent crimes. So you've got all of your fraud, white collar crimes, so mail fraud, wire fraud, tax fraud, Medicare fraud. So that was about 20% of the women there would were fraud crimes, what they called white collar crimes. And that they were sort of, we were sort of like a little bundle unto ourselves, you know? And then they, the rest of them were drug crimes. So um, you're looking at, um, possession with incent, intent to distribute so you'd be a distributor or seller of drugs or a manufacturer a lot of people manufacturing meth or other drugs so you have a manufacturing or you have a conspiracy charge conspiracy was what made me like hate the feds you know like it's like hey we believe you're up to something and we can't totally prove it so we're going to hit you with conspiracy because we th- think that you're you're doing this and It just sticks. You can just go in, or if you're like, if your boyfriend is selling drugs and that you know about it, you can go in for conspiracy. Um, So it's kind of being involved with drugs. Um, Anyway, so those, so those, and the longer, the longer sentences were probably manufacturing. And also, if you had a criminal past, so if you've been in prison before, when you are sentenced, you're given a set of points, and the higher your points are the longer your sentence is going to be. And so you get extra points for, let's say you have a gun enhancement. You weren't using a gun, but you had a gun with you. Your points are going to go up. If you have a criminal past, your points are going to go up. Um, And different crimes have different points to them. And so um, those people that are serving longer are people that have criminal past, maybe had a gun enhancement. um, or had other, or multiple charges. Let's say you had a manufacturing charge, plus you have a conspiracy charge, you know, you might, you would have more points.
1: Makes sense. Maybe. Yeah, you talked about the braiding of hair, and I find that interesting, <laughs> only because being interested in human behavior, having read uh, Sapiens by Yuval Harari, and, uh-huh. um... Uh, civilized to death by, uh, I think it's Christopher Ryan, I think is his name. And as I read these books, I, the, the discussion is what separates humans from primates and the rest of primates, the, the, you know, chimps, orangutans, gorillas, all the monkey members of the monkey families. Right. And, and the reality is that monkeys don't have language yet. They don't have the ability to gossip. They don't have the ability to, um, communicate in ways to tell myths that bind us humans together. And so what primates do is they do grooming and Mm -hmm. they spend time kind of picking bugs out of each other's hair. And that's how they build these relationships that allow them to work together. And here you guys are out in the prison yard and braiding is this big deal. And, And for lots of reasons, right? It's human connection. It's another person kind of pampering you. Um, there's human touch involved, but it's not sexual, and so it allows it allows each of you women to have some degree of human connection. And as you're mentioning that, I'm also thinking about male prisons where guys just aren't going to do that thing. So there's this <laughs> lack of touch and human connection. That, that we all as human beings to some degree crave and we get through intimate interaction, sexual or non-sexual through people around us. So that leads me to just kind of asking like um, whether it's non-sexual, just intimate friendship or whether there is obviously uh, in these groups, there's also degrees of sexual relationships going on too, to some, some level, right? There's intimacy that has more romantic. Um, tell us how relationships worked, uh, in this prison camp.
2: I would say most relationships were non-sexual. Um, but there was, we were not allowed to touch each other, but we did. (laughs) um, I remember, at, so the phones are all up in the front. And I remember one time a friend of mine had received a phone call that her father had died. So she's sitting on the phone and she's cr- clearly crying and sobbing. And so her friends are starting to gather around her and they're sitting on the benches and they're putting their arms around her and hugging her. And she's crying. And everyone else is sort of like, what's going on? You know, and they're like, oh, her father died. And so, you know, the guard comes out and they're like, what's going on? You know, cause you're not allowed to touch each other. And they're like, Oh, father just died. And they're like, well, let's go take care of it. And they, and they were just like, you can't be up here. You can't touch her. Go back to your cubes, you know? And I was like grieved over those moments because like, I know the guards are quote unquote doing their jobs, but sometimes they were just jerks about it. Like clearly this woman's upset and her friends are like holding her and comforting her and, if you've also lost a a parent or a child while you're in prison, you know the loss, you can't go be with your family, you know? And
1: And the shame, right? Like the shame of the fact that you did something wrong, you put yourself in this place, and now you couldn't be there for these moments.
2: Yeah, right. And And so I always... I mean, the guards sort of enforced this depending on who they were and, and what the situation was and all of that. But there was a, definitely a lot of hugging, you know, lots of hugging. And we people be on the yard and they put their arm around each other or whatever. And most people didn't, you know, we didn't get in trouble for that kind of stuff. But but certainly when people were upset and crying, you know, people would comfort them, you know, and I think that the hair braiding was as much about the creativity, you know, either there's no uniqueness there, you're all dressed the same. And so when you braid your hair, not only is the person who's braiding the hair able to show their creativity, but the person who's getting their hair done is able to show a unique style that they have that sets them apart. Um, And then, you know, there was a lot of hand-holding, even I think plutonic hand-holding. And also people had girlfriends there that had a sexual relationship and they would have hand-holding. People would rub each other's shoulders. I did a lot of foot massages and that was not allowed. So I had to kind of watch out for that. But I really liked to, people, me wore these really terrible shoes that people's feet were always hurting. I give people back massages or foot massages. Um, And then of course you did have sexual relationships and those were also not allowed but you know people did that and sometimes i think it was companionship you know and they'd like to just hold hands and walk around the yard and and touch each other and you know in a more sexual way and you know you they people had sex in the showers or in their beds but they had to be on the lookout it was very much you could get into a lot of trouble if you got caught but people had girlfriends and there was sexuality there but I don't know. I, I never really felt like it was like it is in the movies, you know, I don't know, like being raped or, or having it being really crass. I always thought it was much more tender and, and people had the relationships that I don't know you're there and for a long time, you know, and um, if you are a lesbian and you go in, then you of course you'd be looking for that. Some people are more bisexual or they just choose to have sexual relationships with women while they're there. Um, But that was the minority, I felt like. It happened, and there were some relationships, but that was more the minority. But there was touching, you know, hugging and and putting your arm around each other and, you know, rubbing shoulders and comforting and things like that.
1: What kind of punishments would happen? So if if the guards walked in and they were were just wanting to be an ass that day and – Uh, somebody is having some type of physical contact, regardless whether we're talking sexual or Mm non-sexual and the guards are just in a bad mood. What are the kinds of punishments that would come down if somebody's breaking the rules?
2: Sure. Um, I mean, it could be all the way from sort of like yelling at you, you know, like Smith, what are you doing? like don't make me come back here stop touching each other kind of a gruff yelling at you that's kind of a you know low level punishment they could pull you into the office or pull you out you know onto the porch or something and give you a shakedown talking to, do you want me to write you up? Blah, 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 that kind of thing. Um, or they could literally write an incident report. So if they wrote an incident report on you, it's called a shot. So like you, you would get a shot, which is, and so the incident report would then go for review to, you know, your counselor and you could lose your job. That's one of the things they could punish you with depending on, you know, what level your incident report was. They could fire you from your job. They could pull you out of your cube and put you in the common area so you would lose the privacy of your cube. They could take away commissary so you wouldn't be able to shop and, and buy things on the commissary. They could take away your email or your phone privileges so you wouldn't be able to reach out to your family. Um, and then probably, the, I mean, the biggest punishment would they would remove you from the, from the campus and they would put you in a, a higher security Camp. So, if you were caught with drugs or fighting or repeated sexuality, they would literally remove you from the camp, um, and they would take you. So, there's a place. It's called the shoe, which is kind of a solitary confinement area. And I always literally thought, "Oh, I wonder why they call it the shoe." Like I thought of a shoe on your foot. <laughs> it wasn't. I was halfway through prison when I saw it in writing and saw that it was spelled S H U solitary housing unit and i was like oh gosh it's called the shoe because it's literally that's the things but
1: that's the acronym
2: that's the acronym so we didn't have a shoe at alderson so you couldn't be pulled out and put into solitary you literally were removed and often taken up to hazelton or uh aliceville or to another prison that was a higher security prison because you were just too high risk to be at that prison so those are the different um punishments and you know depending on where you were with your commissary and your family like having your phone and your email taken away is a big deal I mean you we do not have the internet no internet no phones the only way you reach out to your family aside from letters would be to call them on the phone or send them an email through this very clunky sort of email it wasn't internet based it was like just an email system you know And if you had that taken away, you know, that really sucked. I mean, it's just, there's resources are so tight and so small that these kinds of punishments made a big deal. You know, they were a big deal. Now you could have your room searched. So let's say you were just like always, the guards were like, you're always in trouble. You're always late. You're always in this stuff. They could just say, I'm sick of you, Smith, and they could go shake your room down, which would mean they would just search your room to look for any kind of contraband, just pull your mattress apart, rip everything out of your locker, and just kind of looking for contraband. And then they, you have to clean, your, clean it up. If they found contraband, they could write you a report. Like I said, they could go anywhere from an incident report, which means you would have to go before your case manager and receive whatever punishments, you know, that you're doling out. You know, and everyone, of course, was like, "Oh my gosh, you got a shot! Like, what? What happened? You know, what'd you get? Did they?" And sometimes people would wave it and say, "We're just going to let it go." And then sometimes they would follow through. The punishments, of course, weren't del- delved out in, con- in any kind of level of consistency. I don't know if we want to get into like the the relationships between the power dynamic between guards and inmates, but the level of inconsistency plays into that power dynamic you
1: know? Yeah, I definitely, I definitely do want to talk about that here at some point. So let's not get through the end of this without talking about that. And I think we'll hit some of this in the next section. Um, I, 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 so I guess you've got a little note here about like types of crime. I guess I want to, I want to start off by saying this question, which is what are some of the, uh, things that, you know, did you ever get in trouble and did it ever escalate to the point of you losing your job there or, um, getting you know screamed at or whatever other things are going on. Were some of those things that you experienced firsthand?
2: Mm. I never got a shot while I was at Alderson, but sometimes that was just pure luck. I, I feel like for me, I stumbled into making mistakes more than I made them on purpose. Uh, one of the funniest things that well, it wasn't funny to me, but it was funny to my, the other inmates, is I just I just lived on the outside for so long. I got for you forget. So I had a commissary shopping day at 6.30 a.m. one day, and I had been working in the, in the kitchen, so I didn't realize that the campus was literally closed until 6.30 because I'd been getting up at 5 o'clock and going down to work. So I was like, okay, I don't have to go to work anymore but, at that job, but I'm going to get up at 6.15, and I am going to get down to that commissary line so I don't have to wait for an hour. So I bust out, and I walk down there, and I'm halfway down to commissary. I look around, and I'm like, oh, my gosh there's nobody out here. I don't think I'm supposed to be out here. There's nobody here. And I realized in my mind, I'm like, I don't think the campus is open. Now I could get an escape charge, which is like an extra five years if you try and escape for leaving the dorm building before 630. But I was literally in my mind just thinking, I just need to get down to commissary. I don't have to wait in line. And my friends were like, they called me Susie. They're like, Susie, I cannot believe you busted out of here at 6.15 and no one stopped you. So I kind of like got down to commissary and literally just like hit in the corner of the steps with my head down and waited until 6.30 when the campus opened. But so it's stuff like that that I would do sort of unknowingly. But had I been caught doing that, for example, most likely they would have not given me an escape charge because I would have said, hey, I didn't know. Like I was just trying to get to commissary, blah, blah, blah they may have written me up and given me a shot, you know, and then I would have lost commissary or something for, I would be what they considered out of bounds. So I was not, I was somewhere I wasn't supposed to be. I was outside the unit before the campus was open. So you're called out of bounds. I did not get caught on that occasion, but you know, you can get in trouble. You could potentially get an escape charge. It would be unlikely probably on my first offense, they would have given me escape charge, but you know, that's possible. And for me, I did get a lot of yelling at. um, So during count time, so they counted us seven times a day. And at four o'clock and nine o'clock were what they call standing counts. So you have to be at your cube door standing silently while the guards walk through and count everyone. And count is important because they want to know if everyone's where they're supposed to be. So the guards had walked by. And I sat down in a chair and was just waiting for them to clear the count. So I was, you're technically supposed to be standing, but the guards had already walked by and counted me. So I had just sat down in my chair and I was just sitting there waiting for the count to clear before I, so I could leave my cube. Well, for whatever reason, the lieutenant that was on that day walked down the aisle behind and I heard the keys coming. So I jump up and stand up in the doorway, but she saw me sitting. So afterwards she walked by and she goes, you! on the porch. I was like, oh, crap. The lieutenant, you know. So you go out there and you're in your pajamas, right? You're in your brown pajamas. And it's more of a kind of embarrassing. So you're standing there with the lieutenant who's in the white shirt and the two guards are there. And she's like, Smith, why were you sitting down during count? And I'm thinking, what do you say to that? You know, I'm like, I apologize. You know, I... I should have been standing. I go, I don't know, what do you say? Like, why were you sitting? I don't know, because I'm bored to death and because I was already counted. And so she's like, you need to apologize to these officers for, you could have messed up their count and then their jobs are on the line I was like, really? This is really overdramatic here. In my mind, I'm thinking this, but you don't say that because if you sass them, then of course they can, you know, give you a shot and you could be punished. So I turn and I'm like, officers, I apologize for sitting down on your count. I'll never do it again, you know. And she's like, that's right. You won't do it again. This is a this is just a stupid camp. If you were in a FCI, you would be in the shoe right now, you know. And they just kind of make a big deal about it. And of course, everyone's like, oh, crap, Smith, you know, Smith. Or Because they called me Susie and the guards called me Smith. They're like, she's out on the porch. I wonder what's happening. And so everyone's waiting for you to come back. So And the same thing happened to me a lot in the cafeteria because I was very social. And so I would, like, move around from the tables. And here comes a lieutenant. She had it out for me, I'll tell you. And she'd be like, Smith, this is not your own personal social hall. Get out. You know, and they kind of, for me, I, I got yelled at more. And I was, you know, I got searched a few times, but I never got caught doing anything that would really give me a shot. But I saw other people, a lot of humiliation. I felt like it was humiliation where they kind of pull you out. They yell at you in front of other people or they pull you into the office. And depending on their mood and if they like you or don't like you, you know, they can, guess, like I said, give you punishments. But that was kind of how it was for me. I didn't really get into a lot of trouble. Gotcha. I did get a tattoo, but I never got caught. If I got caught, they, the other thing they can punish you with is they can give you more days in prison. So if I'd gotten caught with my tattoo, I could have gotten, I could have gotten more days in prison.
1: What did did you get? (laughs) Okay. We'll just move on. Next question. (laughs) So
2: you're not supposed to get prison tattoos, but I was like, I don't know anyone who's ever been to prison by the grace of God, may I never go back to prison. I got to take it for the team, right? You got to get a prison tattoo in prison, right? That's what you have to do it. So I got one, I have it, it's on my back, and uh, it's an A, it's an A, it has bars and uh, bricks in it, and a little flower and a cloud, and it stands for Alderson, and I wanted to be reminded of the bricks and the bars and and the beauty, so I can remember the beauty within the confinement. It also is a throwback to the Scarlet Letter, and it also stands for awesome, you know, authentic.
1: (laughs) I love it. I love it. Tell us, um, so you've got a little note here, the types of crime at Alderson uh, and the types of women at Alderson. So let's, let's go through those. But um, I'm also curious, kind of in that question, is there, are there hierarchies in terms of the prisoners? Again, a lot of our experience as human beings uh, is, is male prisons and what, how those are portrayed in movies and TV shows and the hierarchies that exist based on, what kind of crimes people commit. So if somebody is a a child predator of some sort or uh, hurts children, and that's why they're in in prison, Mm. um, they are the scum of the, of the, of the ladder. Right. And, and certain crimes put people in a higher hierarchy. How did that, how did those kinds of things work where you were at? And then the point you wanted to make, which is what kind of crimes exist inside Mm. and what types of women uh, exist in, in these prison camps.
2: Sure. Like I already kind of mentioned the different types of crimes that got you, got you there. Um, I'm trying to think where I want to, want to go. So the hierarchy um, I feel, I felt like this is my, this is just very anecdotal. <laughs> if my prison friends are listening, they're probably like that didn't like, wasn't like that, but this is how it seemed to me. The white collar criminals, the fraud crimes really to me felt like not really part of the hierarchy very much they tended to be um, more educated and I don't know, they just really were not involved with drugs and not that often. And so I don't know, they just sort of were kind of an animal unto themselves Um, as far as the women that are there. So we're in West Virginia. So people who were there are coming from Kentucky, Tennessee, North Carolina, Virginia, West Virginia, most of them. I mean, there's some other places too, DC, um, Pennsylvania, but that's where most of them are. And so I would say the racial mix was maybe 40% white, 40% black and 20% Hispanic. Um, And I would say the white collars were probably 80% white and 20% black. And then the rest would be drug crimes. And to me, the drug hierarchy carried over into the prison hierarchy There weren't really any gangs that I was aware of at Alderson, but some of the gang affiliations from the outside, particularly in the Hispanic gangs, those allegiances carried into the prison, right? So if you were in a gang on the outside, you probably had those allegiances when you came in. But I never really noticed any gangs on the inside, like you hear about. And there may be those in other prisons. Um, But to me, it was like the drug hierarchy carried over into the prison. So if you had a longer sentence, it probably meant that you were a bigger deal in the drug world. If you were, had a shorter sentence, there, were, there was a high potential you were a snitch. Snitches were the lowest on the rung. And I didn't have any snitches on my case because I was I wasn't a drunk. But most people that were in there for drugs had a snitch on their case, and so snitches were super low on the rung. So if you were known to be a snitch, I always felt like people kind of looked down on you a little bit, um, and you never wanted to be known as a snitch. But like if you had a long sentence, I think it just signaled to other people that you knew what you were doing when it came to drugs, or you'd been around the block. Um, so and then. I felt like the people who were the most likely to like really hurt you or fight with you would be the, were people that were more quiet. I mean, there was a lot of young girls in there running their mouth constantly. People were always swearing and yelling at each other and running their mouth. Those people weren't as scary to me because they were so obvious, you know, they were just, but then there were some people that were a little more quiet. And I was like, "Whew! I would not want to tangle with that person. You know, they would assume to bash your head against a bathroom wall. And there certainly were fights, and there were was violence, but it was fairly tamped down and um I made some I think some fortunate alliances pretty early on I mean, if somebody had your back and they were known to you know known to take care of business, then you were kind of under their wing and I made a friend with a girl named Cookie really early on, and she was a girl from Kentucky, and she meant business, you know, and uh so I feel like. I, I sort of was under her wing a bit and there was one girl early on that bullied me a little bit and I never got hit or anything, but I think she could have come after me or hit me, but she didn't like me for whatever reason. And, but I, I was under the wing a bit. And so anyway, that's, I feel like the drug hierarchy trans, translates into prison as the prison hierarchy. But if you kept, if you kind of laid low, most people weren't, weren't, wouldn't fight with you you had to be in their face and be poking the bear and be bugging them. And then there a lot of verbal fighting first before the fist started swinging. So yeah, that's what yeah. I would
1: say. And you mentioned types of women. Is that kind of what we've talked about kind of covered or is there something else you yeah, wanted to add to that kind of idea?
2: I just, I feel like there were, I met some very different types of women. Like I would say like the rural poor whites, I had not had a lot of, interaction with them in my lifetime until I went to prison and I met a lot of, I would say, rural, poor white people um, with serious, serious lack of resources, unbelievable lack of resources. Um, racially, I think we were very self-segregated. I made friends with the Black women as well. I felt like I was friendly with them. Um, and it was harder for me to identify sort of their socioeconomic space because I'm not as familiar with Black women as I am with white women, Um, but I would say that a lot of people came from backgrounds that had very poor resources. Just lack of education, lack of family cohesion, um, lack of money, just a lot of lack of resources, lots and lots of lack when it came to Health, dentistry, a lot of lack in those areas. Um, So those are the types of women I met. Uh, The verb conjugation was ridiculously awful. I never got used to that. Oh, it was just terrible. (laughs) I had a really hard time with that. (laughs)
1: So, Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, Let's start talking about a little bit about the the struggles that uh, that happen on the inside. Um, Let's start off with kind of the relationship between uh, those serving a sentence and the staff or guards and Mm -hmm. what you saw as healthy or unhealthy in those interactions.
2: I thought in general, the interactions between the staff, staff and guards was pretty unhealthy um, with, the, with the inmates. And most of that was because of the power dynamic that existed between them. I mean, obviously, um, the guards and the staff had all the power and we had none of the power. But not only did we not have any power, we had extreme lack of resources. Um, and I just feel like that kind of a power dynamic isn't good for anyone, right? To be able to have 100% authority and power over another person and be able to fire them from their job, get them in trouble, make their life harder or make their life easier. is just, it's not great. All the guards and staff were I would say 90% white. We're in West Virginia. And so this leads to, I feel like the only way to get what you want If you are a prisoner and resources are slim, is to manipulate and lie and coerce and conjole and try and figure stuff out. So you're not acting in a very trustworthy way, and the guards know this. They don't want to get taken advantage of, but they don't know how to help you anyway, and they probably don't want to. So they can get sucked in. So the dynamic was always more about pulling one over on the guards, and the guards are always trying to catch you, and. I think also probably the most unhealthy thing that I saw was the infantilization there was the infantilization was immense so you're treating these women not like prisoners but like children like you're treating grown women like children. Like you'd come out if they were make if we were making too much noise, like it's seven o'clock at night and we're just up and we're laughing and talking and a guard would come out and be like, shoo, get back to your cubes. You guys are making so much noise, you're driving me crazy. Well, that's something you would say to a child. And like we are in our house. We are in our house. And we're all talking together and someone has the power to come and shoo us back to our rooms because we're making too much noise and so i feel like that's just not good we know who's in charge we know you're in charge if you bill have a boss at work you know he's in charge he doesn't have to yell at you and tell you you're stupid or tell you to go home or any of those things, you still know he's in charge. He can treat you with respect, and you can have this relationship that's respectful and still know that he's in charge. I never saw that kind of respect. And so that is one thing I feel like sets prisoners and inmates up really poorly to come back into society because they have no modeling of what it's like to live in a social hierarchy where clearly someone's in charge and someone's not in charge without this level of disrespect or fake, what I would call fake respect. And so you're, you're like literally waiting in lines, like school children, you're eating with plastic silverware on plastic trays, and you're just... And there was a lot, the inmates would like have a lot of baby talk, I would, between them. And I feel like we were just treated as if we were little kids. Now, if you were to pull a guard on here, they might say, well, if you act like a child, I'm going to treat you like a child. And certainly, some of us acted like children. But there was no modeling for uh, appropriate, respectful interchange. And I feel like that was really socially damaging. And I was really stunned by it when I first got there. And then I kind of got used to it. But um, yeah, just, just the way, like even asking a question, I can remember when I was first there, I was trying to get a prescription filled. You wait in line forever and you got to be in the right line at the right time. Oh, it's so frustrating because you, you got to figure out all the lines. And I was, said, they didn't have my prescription. So I said, should I wait? like questioning, like, well, should I just sit out here in the waiting room and wait? Are you going to fill it? You know, I didn't know how this worked. And I think the guard misunderstood me. And he's like, let me tell you something. In this environment, I tell you what to do. You don't tell me what to do. I was like, whoa. I was like, I'm just asking, should I wait for this prescription? He's like, no, come back at one. You know, you have to get back in line at a different time. And so when you're learning all those things, and you irritate people because you're saying, well, should I wait for it? Because if I was at giant grocery store waiting for my prescription, I'd say, well, let's get some groceries and I'll come back in 20 minutes. That's not how it works. You get back in line and you get back at line at the time we tell you to get back in line. So I feel like that kind of infantilization and that sort of like, Inability to help yourself. Like you just, you don't know when am I supposed to pick up my prescription or how can I be seen by a doctor? You just, you have no ability to like help yourself move forward because you just hit these blockades constantly and there's no respect or knowledge. That was kind of a long winded thing, but I think that to me was the hardest part. I'm sure it's worse in other prisons because we have, we had more freedom in a camp, but you just, there's no way to help yourself because you don't have any information. You just have, you don't know how to help yourself. So, that's
1: um, really hard. yeah. So, you know, as female prisoners, you're, you're obviously to some extent kind of a vulnerable group. And one of the things I would worry about are that these male guards specifically are maybe abusing that vulnerability. And it, is there any dynamic there where you felt like the, the male guards that work there were ever acting unhealthy? Uh, any sort of predatory behavior, you know, you see a lot of TV shows and movies, again, pointing back to media where the male, there's always this male guard who's, you know, trying to have a sexual experience essentially with the female prisoner. And, and so there's this manipulation behind the scenes, things going on. Is that reality? Or or did you feel like at least on that level, the, the staff and the workers were all on the up and up and and respectful uh, of boundaries, I guess, in that sense?
2: Well, when it came to like literal, like rape and sexuality, Al Alderson was hyper vigilant because about three or four years before I got there, the captain gosh what was his name groves groves, something like that he was caught and convicted of seventeen counts of rape, and so he's now in prison, and um he yeah seventeen counts of literally having sexual intercourse or um like uh fellatio with a female inmate, and so because that was so recent, the people, the staff were hyper vigilant about not getting sexually involved. So this captain—I mean, I wasn't there for this. This happened before I got there. He would—he was given the girls' drugs, and they would come and have sex with him. But of course, you can't give consent when you're a prisoner, and you're up—you know—and the captain of the guard is—you know wanting do you to have sex? So, right, the power anyway, dynamic an, makes
1: makes it unethical to begin right.
2: with, right. <laughs> Clearly unethical. So anyway, he's in prison now, but because it had happened, I felt like everyone was very, very cautious. I never knew of any male guards um, being sexual. Now it may have happened. I didn't know about it. Um, and I never heard about it. However, I did feel like the male guards were inappropriate in other ways, like making comments. And now this didn't happen to me because man, I was waiting, I'm like, give me an excuse to write a Priya charge on you. But they would say things like, your pants are too tight, go down to laundry and get a bigger pair of pants, which to me is like sexualizing women, right? Like I want you to wear baggy clothes. I'm like, um, we are women, like, so anyway, they could say that, or I heard, now this was this is a secondhand experience that some of the men, the male staff would say things like, oh, here she comes with her makeup on, put makeup on a pig, doesn't change the pig. Like just making degrading comments like that about women or how they were ugly or how they were pretty or how they were trashy. And so that never happened to me directly, but I heard a lot of those stories and I felt like that was always inappropriate, you know? And so I did hear about male guards sort of making comments like that, like sort of sexualizing the women or making inappropriate, what I would call inappropriate sexual type comments. Yeah. But as far as rape or anything that was from my experience not happening because of what had recently happened at alderson
1: gotcha tell us a little bit about information um you you make a note here that bad information uh in regards to counselors and then also kind of like the lack of knowledge from the outside world you're isolated and you're you're kind of hidden away for a year and Mm -hmm. the access to news the access to Um, get help with your own situations within the prison camp. Um, Talk for a moment about how information, both good and bad works in in the system.
2: Right. You know, I felt like we had pretty okay information about like world news or national news i was in there at the time of the uh, trump was being impeached and people had cnn on the tv pretty much all the time so like we knew that that was happening if there was a storm or hurricane we knew because of the news then people's family would call them them obviously the coronavirus we knew that was happening you know so um I feel like we get news coming in, getting news out about our lives. Like I think the average person doesn't know anything about what's going on in prison because we don't have Facebook. You don't have anything to let them know what's happening. Um, So, that as far as getting information and news to help our own situations, that was really, really tough. So everybody of course wants to get out and they're always trying to find ways to write to a lawyer, write to a judge, to figure out when they're leaving. And that was really hard. Um, and I actually do blame the staff for this inability. I'll give you my example to kind of show you how this worked across the board. So everybody's got a different situation for me. I wanted to get on a program called Federal Location Monitoring. It's called FLM, which means I could have left the prison two months earlier, got an ankle monitor through the Federal Location Monitoring, and gone home and stayed on home confinement for two months rather than being an Alderson. So that's what I wanted to have happen. But I did not know how that worked. Like, how do I apply for that? So I go into my counselor and I say, how do I apply for FLM? And she's like, we can't apply for that. That's not a thing. And then I have to leave. I'll be like, okay, well, I get, I'm getting these, like people are talking about FLM and I, I don't, but I don't know how it works so I'd have to write to my sister, or my mom, or my friend and say, can you look up some FLM stuff and like mail it to me? So then I'm getting kind of information. They printed off the internet or they've made a phone call on my behalf and they're sending it to me in the prison. And I'm like going to yoga class and saying, I got this. And someone else going, I got this about FLM. We're trying to piece it together. Like, how does this work? And everything that I was reading said, your counselor in the prison has to apply for this on your behalf. So I get back in line get and go and see the counselor again on the correct day at the correct time. And I say, Hey, I've been reading about FLM and it says that you're supposed to apply for it on my behalf. Well, I don't know what that is all about. That's not right. I'm like, okay, so how can I apply for it? We don't have anything to do with that here. I'm thinking, so I'm standing there and like thinking, you can't leave this room without getting more information. So I'm like, I really think that you're supposed to apply for this Smith. I don't think you understand how these things work. And I said, absolutely. I do not understand how these things work. Will you please tell me how it works, right? You're just getting nowhere. So then you go to your team meeting, which is like every six months, you go to this team meeting where your counselors are. And of course, I've been calling my probation officer, my family, and they're calling the prison. So my counselor is ticked because everyone's been calling her trying to... So I get into this meeting and she's just glaring at me. She goes, having your probation officer calling me does not help this situation. I'm thinking, well, what does help? Tell me what helps. I want to help myself. And so she's angry because I'm making letters and phone calls trying to get news and they're calling her and she doesn't know or she doesn't want to find out. I'm thinking you have the internet and you have a phone. Just call the people and tell me how to do this. So this is, and I'm only there for a year, right? So this all takes months and weeks because you've got to go into the counselor. Then they're off They're on vacation the next week. So then you got to call your mom. Now, hopefully, she'll call this person to mail you this. Then you go back into the counselor's office. So, just me, who has a lot of resources, just trying to figure out how to get onto one program was nearly impossible. And of course, they don't want to help me because I'm driving them crazy. I'm coming in there every week trying to figure this thing out. And they're telling me to go away anyway. And so then I got denied for the FLM program, but I didn't know why. So I was like, well, can I be reconsidered? And why did I get denied? Is there not enough staff? And for me, it was not that big of a deal because I was going home in two months anyway. And I just stayed until my release date and it was not a big deal. But for other people who were in there for 14 years and they're trying to get compassionate release or they're trying to figure something out, they're going through the same process. They're, they're going into the counselor. They're going to their team meeting and they're asking questions and they don't get the information or they get a tiny piece of information. They're trying to beg the people on the outside to add information to it. So it's just this constant cycle of trying to figure out how to get this information and not pissing someone off, talking to the right person You're trying to get information from other inmates who are doing it and they're giving bad information. So it's just bad information on top of bad information. And I, this is me. I just feel like if we had more information on how to help ourselves, many inmates would if they had counselors who were actually trained as counselors and who could spend time with you and say, Hey, I see that you want to get compassionate release, or I see that you want to apply to your judge to have your, this part of your judgment or your gun enhancement dropped. Let me show you how to do that but we don't have that. So that's just an example, a very simple example of what happened to me and, you know, compound that by people who don't have resources, who are not very well educated, who can't read and write very well, who aren't getting information from their case managers and who are locked up away from their families for 14 years, for 10 years. It just it just compounds the situation, you know. So I really felt like that was really lacking.
1: That was a real lack. Is what you just explained this uh, trying to essentially work through the system to have your sentence or accommodations adjusted is, is that the kind of thing you mean when you say like in your notes here, lack of information or lack of knowledge from outside communities or or is that something different? That's kind of what you mean. It's so hard to get help.
2: It's so hard to get help. And even let's say you get assigned to a halfway house. You're like, great, I'm going home, but you want to know what the rules are at this halfway house how do you get the rules to this halfway house? Will you have to get someone on the outside to call them or mail something into you. you. Or you, you try and go down to the resource center, which is sometimes open, sometimes not open. And you have to r- thumb through these books, which are could be up to 10 years old. And you just, you can't even get the rules to know what you're supposed to have. Are you supposed to get a job? Can you have a cell phone? Can you not have a cell phone? any of those informations from outside communities, like when you get out, where are you going to live? Where are you going to get a job? If you want to try and start that process while you're in prison, you don't have any information. So that's kind of what I mean. Like there's just very little information coming in from the communities. And the thing that I find hard is that I was at a camp. So these women, if society wants to reform people and bring them back into society, these camps are the best chance they have of bringing people back into a society to be productive, but we have no tools and how to do that until we get to the outside. And so it would just, if we had more information or if we even had the internet, which, okay, I get that there's going to be complications there and we're supposed to be being punished and being separated. and but we can't come back into society as productive individuals if we don't have resources or information on how to do, how to do that.
1: Right. So. If the goal is to, if the goal is rehabilitation, if the goal is to reduce future crime, if the goal is to reduce, to increase the uh, productivity of these yeah. humans when they go back into society, we're not doing a very efficient job of it. I, I hear you. Yeah. Um, in this section, you kind of got a few things that are, they, they seem tangential, which is children. And then I assume by money and jobs, if we've already covered that earlier, great. But if you're talking about once someone gets on the outside, um, sh- certainly go into that. And then racism may be inside the prison. Um, yeah. Those three areas. What are, what are some of your thoughts yeah. there?
2: So, you know, one of the things I found really interesting that I didn't expect to know about is that there are children involved. Because I was in a women's prison and 90%, I would say, I and mean, this is just anecdotally, these women have kids They have children at home and they love their kids and they want what's best for their kids and they've made a choice for whatever reason they're now in prison. So they're worried about their kids. And then I started thinking, well, what is going on with their kids? And then I think, well, as a society of people, we've now incarcerated so many women. Now, what do we do with their kids? Some of them go into foster care. Some of them are being raised by family members. There's a whole variety of things that happen to these children. But it just made me start really thinking about what is going on with the kids of incarcerated women? And I'm, I am know with men have kids too, but I was not in a men's prison. So I didn't think about it as much. And most of the stories like, were just heavy on my heart because these women, they want good things for their kids. and And every situation is different. Sometimes they gave their kids up for adoption. Most of the time they didn't want to, but then there's all court things going on. And I guess what I wanted to say is just so people could hear is that there are a lot of children involved in these situations so every story I'm telling about a woman there are kids attached and it really made me start thinking like what is best for our society do we want to how much do we want to lock people up and why do we want to lock them up and what's best for everybody because there are kids anyway I just wanted to put it out there I don't know all the answers but there are just there's kids attached to every one of these women um and then as far as money and jobs I actually did want to talk a little bit about the money and jobs inside the prison. Because money buys resources and that money is just always tight. If you want to call home, if you want to buy anything to help yourself, if you want to send an email, it all costs money and you're making 17 cents an hour. So your paycheck every month is what, 27 ish dollars. Um, and that's just not very much money. And there's stamps. You have to buy stamps. You have to buy envelopes. You have to buy pens. You have to buy paper. And I was lucky. I did have some friends on the outside who sent me money, and that really helped a lot. They sent me books, sent me all kinds of things, and I could buy buy stamps and, and things like that. But I also don't think we realize like the funds are just really, really limited. Now add on top of that, that if you have a white collar crime and you have restitution, you have to pay restitution while you're in prison. And so your entire paycheck could potentially go to restitution. Then you'd have like no money. And so it's just, I'm not saying that people shouldn't pay restitution. I, absolutely think we should pay restitution, you know, that's part of what I'm doing. And, um, but it's just, it goes into the dynamic of the rest of people's lives. If people have fines, they have to pay those fines while they're in prison. And so then a lot of times, like if I had a friend and she had a bunch of fines, and so they're taking her whole paycheck, you have know, to pay those fines, which isn't enough. And so that her mother is now on the outside feeding money into her, which goes towards her fines. And her mother on the outside is taking care of her kids. So doesn't have a lot of extra money. So just to say that it's just tight and complicated and it's just hard because you have to, Pay these different things, and you have very few resources, so I was just gonna
1: uh, real quickly there is yeah is there ever an issue with theft like I would imagine you have all these people who can kind of roam around each other's spaces and so if if Suzette buys a you know ten stamps mm-hmm. is is anybody ever trying to steal two of suzette's stamps or or is everybody pretty respectful of other people's property in this in this camp
2: yeah i I felt like there it was a mostly respect yes there is theft and mostly it was about the hustle right like i'm going to sell you this pair of shoes i'm going to sell you this stamp and everyone's trying to get get in on the hustle and some like some people feel like i got taken advantage of and i sold i bought this pair of boots and it was crappy and you know so to me it was more about the hustle and probably people like charging too much in the hustle but I didn't see a lot of theft, certainly some theft, but not a lot. Resources are so scarce that I felt like people work together more than they stole from each other. So it was and, kind of about the hustle. And
1: then <laughs> you mentioned earlier, there weren't that many fights were, um, so the, it felt, it seems like you're saying like, there wasn't really a ton of violence. Um, and you knew kind of, I guess, you know, you figure out pretty quick who to kind of stay away from and, mm-hmm. and who's happy and pretty jovial and, and wakes up <laughs> on the right side of the bed every day. But, um, did you ever sense like somebody's life was in danger because they pushed against another another inmate too hard, or did you ever sense like um, it could it could go south here any second in this this argument?
2: I, I never I never felt like anyone's life was ever in danger. Again, it, we didn't have a lot of fist fights. Some, um, but oh yeah, there was a lot of times I'm like, oh, someone's gonna come out swinging. It's coming. It's coming. You know, um, and a lot of the fights, people knew when to. They would fight in places or at times when the guards were not around and everyone else, no one would ever read. That's not true. Lots of people would not report it. There were definitely people who would report it, but many people just wouldn't say anything. They'd see it happen and just let them fight it out. Um, I've often said since I've been home, I said, you know, one thing I learned in there was I never, never... like will judge the book by its cover and the ability to people to be kind and gracious to one another for whatever package they come in. And I also will never put it past someone that looks very docile to smash your head against a bathroom wall. If you provoke them, (laughs) you know, so people could escalate really fast, really fast. And so you just, if you provoke people, they will, they will come at you. Um, But I didn't see a lot of fights. Some was always very exciting.
1: What would be the motive in reporting a fight that the guards didn't see? In other words, there seems to often be in these um, sub-societies, such as prison, a certain code and the idea that no matter what kind of happens, we don't get the guards involved. What would be the motive for reporting such that somebody was just really abused um, without any real deserving of it and they're just trying to get some justice for that person or what what would lead to that?
2: Definitely, I would say the overarching feeling is don't get the guards involved. Let people work these things out. There's a fight, you let them, you let them fight it out. That would I would say the overarching. But if you were going to get a guard involved, couple reasons. One that you did state. Let's say it was your friend, and your friend was like hurt, and you're like, oh no, 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 this is not going down. You just hurt my friend, and this I'm reporting this because you're going to get in trouble for this. Um, the person that was in the fight might report it because they wanted to get the other person in trouble and they felt like they were in the right. Or some people are, some people want to get other people in trouble because they feel like it, you know, it, they don't like that person. Oh, Bill got into a fight and I don't like Bill. So I'm going to go report him and say, I saw a fight cause he'll get in trouble. Um, Or you want to ingratiate yourself with the guards. So if you're ingratiated with the guards, you can maybe get your way, or maybe the guards will go easier on you. So if you report it, then you, those are the reasons why people would report it if they did.
1: Gotcha. Gotcha. So um, you've got a section here and a lot of the listeners are asking this as well, which is, does prison work? Do, Do you feel like prison is a deterrent Do you, while you're in there and now that you've gotten out and in your understanding of conversations with other inmates, do you feel like they, while they're in there and after they got out, felt like prison said, you know, the message was, I don't ever want to go back there again. I'm going to keep my nose clean. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to do the right thing and try to operate in this world in, in healthier ways that keep me from going back to this kind of uh, behavior. Does, Mm -hmm. does rehab, does this, does this rehabilitate somebody?
2: Right. And one of my questions back to people was, well, what is it you, what is it that society wants prison to do? I'm not sure that society is clear on what it wants prison to do. Do you want to punish people who step outside? Do you want to rehabilitate them? I think most people are wanting to know, does prison rehabilitate people? If we put them in prison and pay our tax dollars, do we get back into society a better person? I think that's what they really want to know. Um, but I'm not sure we're really clear on what we want our prisons to do, you know? Or do we want to remove people who are dangerous? I mean, I wasn't in a place where there were violent cr- criminals, so I don't know. I mean do we want to remove people who prey on children? Do we want to remove people who are violent, or do we want to punish them, Or do we want to rehabilitate them? On the punishment front, yes, I think prison is a punishment. I felt punished. I think the people in there feel punished. Uh, because they 're being taken away from their from their children, from their family, from their jobs, from their society, and so we, we're being punished for the rest of our lives like i, I can 't vote, I have a hard time finding housing and jobs, and I right now i 'm on probation, so i 've got a babysitter following me around so yeah that 's a punishment, and and we keep on punishing people um, so I, I definitely think it 's a punishment now deterrent a deterrent to me is different from punishment and the deterrent I think is very individual. If you want to go back to a life of crime, punishment will only make you angry, right? It's just, it's not going to make you humble, It's not going to force you to be humble. It's going to make you angry and you're going to be angry caught. Co- you're going to say, I'm going to go back out there and I'm not getting caught next time because let's go into law enforcement. You know, I mean, Again, I'm speaking anecdotally. I do not have the numbers, but they're, you're picking up people. And again, it's sort of random. Like, let's say there's 100 people cooking meth in the backwoods of this town in, in, uh, in Kentucky. And the 50 of them either gets ratted out or they somehow fall into the net of law enforcement. So these 50 get hauled away and the other 50 are still out there getting away with it. So people are committing crimes. Some of them are getting picked up. Some of them aren't. So once you get into this, it's just a machine, right? Like the prosecutors, they know what they are. You have to sign this, sign that stand in front of the judge. It's a machine. And you would process these people through the machine, put them in prison. And, um, So I'm not convinced it's, this is just me. It's a great deterrent because if you, if you want to be rehabilitated and you want to make better choices, prison can be a true time of reflection and betterment and making better connections. If you don't want to be rehabilitated, you just want to be pissed off at the police and the feds and go back out there then you won't be. It's not prison that will rehabilitate you. But I think if you want to be rehabilitated, it's a good place to take advantage of some things. They had a drug program at Alderson, which I thought was really great. It was a residential drug program. I thought it was a, they did a really good job. The rest of the stuff, not so much. You're certainly not giving people job skills, at least not in Alderson. They're not getting job skills. The best their job they're doing there is probably drug rehab. So they're having some pretty good success at drug rehab, but they're not preparing people, in my opinion, in other ways. But if you as an individual want to take this time seriously, take some time out and better yourself, you can take that time, but it's up to you. So I don't think the prison is doing it, but I think it can provide a space for people to rehabilitate if they want to. Does
1: that yeah. make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And, and one of the listeners said, you know, if if a person can't be reformed, is prison still useful? And, and I guess again, if if there's value on the punishment and consequences of one's choices, and that when you hurt somebody, you owe it to th- the people you hurt and to society to mm-hmm. pay a price, then mm-hmm. then prison is useful to that extent. But but really, uh, and again, I don't want to get off topic here. But <laughs> there's a realization in the last episode or two that I've done for the Almost Awakened podcast, I've I've become aware over the last couple of years that really free will is not as simple as we think and that often we are um, a product of our circumstances Mm -hmm. and um, Mm -hmm. often we are traumatized by people around us and and that trauma causes us to have certain mechanisms and behaviors and so often what leads to somebody being um, a shoplifter, a consistent shoplifter to all the way being a serial killer mm-hmm. is, isn't so much like, Oh, I'm just making a free will choice and I'm just choosing bad behaviors. Mm-hmm. And, and so punishment for a human being, simply being as human as they know how to be, mm-hmm. doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And when you enter the space of being, um, awakened to some extent, it really feels like we all should start moving from punishment to rehabilitation. Mm -hmm. And if the system doesn't rehab people, then maybe the system needs to change.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's complicated, but there are definitely people. And I would say many of the women who dealt drugs that I knew were dealing drugs to make money to feed their kids. So now they're in prison because of that choice and they're definitely not feeding their kids now, you know, so But was that mother thinking about that?
1: Yeah. And now their kids have a greater chance of falling into these patterns of bad (laughs) behavior too. So it it seems like it's a cycle and that often the system, which is designed to create less crime, actually maybe even creates more crime.
2: I think it can. I think it can. And I think society, like you said earlier, needs to be, the question was, if people aren't going to be rehabilitated, is prison useful? That's a good question. I don't know that you're spending a lot of money on prisons. The one thing that would be useful, in my opinion, is that if you have a violent criminal and you want to remove that person from society to stop that person from harming society, maybe the removal of that person, it could be helpful in a camp like I was in. I don't know. There's still drug dealers out there, even though there's some drug dealers behind bars. Some of them are definitely going to come out and they're going to be better and they're going to raise their kids up and they're going to do better jobs. Some of them are going to want to do better, but won't have the resources to do better. So we'll fall back in. And some of them don't want to do better, yeah. but you just spend a lot of money locking them up for a short period of time. Yeah. It's a a complicated question. It's a complicated question.
1: I've only got uh, maybe 25 minutes left, somewhere in that range. Um, I want to try to hit some of these other things. So you've got this idea of sentencing society victims. I I feel like we covered that to some extent in this conversation we just Mm -hmm. had. Uh, Mm -hmm. Do you have anything else you want to add to that kind of section?
2: Yeah. The only thing I'll add is that after being through the sentencing process, after being through signing a plea, and watching so many other people, it's just such a machine. You know, I, I used to think that when the statement of facts came out and when the plea came out, that that was the truth, right? The FBI did it. They wrote this. Of course, it's true. But you realize it's hard to find out what's really true because I'll tell you what, I signed my plea because my lawyer said, you either make this hard on them or you make this easy on them and they will make it hard or easy on you in return. So of course I signed, right? Like I want my life to be as easy as possible. Do I think my statement of facts is true? Mostly true. Yeah. But in every case, people are just making the decisions that are best for them. And that as an outsider, I guess I would just say to people, like, it's hard to know what the truth is, even when the reports come out, because everybody's like, got got their angle. And of course there's victims involved too. And we haven't talked about the victims of these crimes very much. And that's a whole nother question. I mean, these victims of the crimes, they want their slice of justice too. And I think they should get it. But what what is just for them? And how are we helping society? I, I don't know. Like there's there, these are just hard, hard questions. But I guess when I talk about sentencing and prosecution, I don't know. I just have a different view on where the truth lies it's not always as easy to see.
1: No, no, we don't live in a black and white world, right? Like things are messy. They are complicated. And the facts, and we don't take into account people's life experience and the trauma imposed on them. We don't take into account um, no. that, they were, that they were committing a bad behavior because it was the only possible means they knew to provide for the people around them or themselves. And it, it really does get tricky. And if somebody has to decide between I fight this and maybe, maybe there's a 30% chance I, I, I can plead my case and be seen and heard and go free. Mm-hmm. Or if if I fight it, I get twenty years instead of five years. That's
2: if exactly I just do the plea, right.
1: now, now I'm you know if it was me and I'm innocent and I'm facing a 50-50 chance of twenty years or no years, or I can take the plea for five, I might take the plea for five. Um, it, it it does get complicated. So I I completely hear what now, you're saying. I will
2: saying. say you mentioned innocent. I didn't meet anyone who was innocent, myself included. Like we are guilty of committing crimes. So that being said, what is you're still gonna wanna help yourself. So um, anyway, there certainly are innocent people who go to prison. I don't know that I met any. And again, I was guilty of my crime, but it's in the nuances, right? Like how guilty is guilty and what exactly really happened and what do the victims of these crimes need to feel better and what is a correct punishment for this crime and who else else is out there committing these same crimes who isn't being punished and doesn't matter? So I think it's more of those kinds of questions than whether or not someone is innocent or guilty. You know what I mean? Right. Me, it's, it's, right. We're slicing those hairs a little bit more. So.
1: Right. What is the appropriate sentence right. for, for the facts as they really are rather than the perception of the facts by a hundred different parties?
2: Right. I'll just give one example. So I was really curious about my drug crime friends and how how much time they thought they should spend in prison. So I often would ask them, go back to the day you were sentenced and you're dope sick and you're strung out on drugs and you're making some bad choices from that day till the day you feel like you could have gone back into society and done right. Like how long would that be? I would say most of my drug friends, I call them drug friends, doesn't sound right, but most of the friends I had that had committed a drug crime, um, you would say four years. Okay. Well, let's say their sentence is 10 years and they're saying in four years, I moved from that dope sick person to a person who really kind of got it and wanted to do better, but they got six more years. So society is losing six years. This is just an example of a person who could be back into society. And so again, it goes back to these sentencing things that I'm not sure what the right answer is. Right. Um, So society loses time on a person who was already rehabilitated four years in and has six more years to serve, but maybe somebody died from a drug overdose. How does their family feel? about it. You know, so there's all these different pieces, but what I want to say is I do think the sentences are too long in general and that we would do better as a society to pull people back out because they are real rehabilitated faster than we leave them in there and if they're not going to be rehabilitated, they're not going to be. Does that make sense? So yeah.
1: Yeah. How do you sort out out the people that need to stay longer to protect society versus the people that need to get out earlier because they're ready to now contribute in healthy, positive ways to building society.
0: Yep. Um, And that's a hard question.
1: Yeah, Yeah. yeah, totally. Um, This last section is what can we do to make things better? Um, You know, I'll kind of let you go through that list. You know, you've got a Mm -hmm. note here, be aware that prisoners are out there, encourage classes and programs, help in the community and understand addiction, abuse, and neglect. Maybe run well, us through some of your thoughts in each of those.
2: Again, this is where the conversation, like, it's just, it, it it's uncertain. But I, I think somebody was teasing me. They're saying white people just want to raise awareness. That's all they want to do. And so here I am raising awareness about prisoners. But I, I definitely think that they're a population that people just don't think about. They they just don't think about it. I never thought about prisoners until I was one. I never knew what their lives were like. I never thought about it, but just being aware that there are prisoners out there and it's not just orange is the new black melodrama like these are people's lives and they're they're there, you know hundreds of thousands of people in our country are currently incarcerated. And I think it's important to remember that they're there. We can just, if you remember to pray for them, I think that's a great thing. If you remember to talk about them or ask questions or say, oh, I wonder what's going on in the prison. Is there a prison that's around you or a jail that's around you? Do you know who's in there? What's going on? Could you be a visitor? Could you write letters? I mean, I think there's just a level of saying There are people in society that are living off the grid, not by their own choice, but because they're locked up and they're very forgotten. And then the second layer would be, there are people coming back into society every single day that are going to have a hard time. I don't know. Do you have a business or uh, a house that you could take a chance on somebody? Do you want to open it up and interview some felons? Um, I understand that they're a higher risk population. I get that. Um, but they're not going to have it any easier unless you take a chance on them. Maybe you want to hire them. Maybe you want to at least interview them. Maybe you want to say, Hey, this person's looking for housing and they're not going to find it. Maybe I'll just give them a chance. Like, I feel like, If we start being more aware of opening doors, there are some people that I believe that I knew in prison who I think really, really want to have a better life. I'm not sure they're going to because I don't know if they're going to be afforded the resources to make that happen. You know, so... I think being aware of what's going on in your own community and who's, where are the people when they're coming back? Who are these people? Where are the halfway houses? Have you gone over to the halfway house? Do you know what's going on there? Do you, are you able to give, are you able to make a friendship with someone who doesn't talk like you or look like you or have the same experience as you? Um, I think we can do a lot to help in communities if we actually paid attention to where the prisons were, where the halfway houses were, where are people working that are coming out of prison and can we uh, increase their working wage? Can we give them better jobs? Can we, you know, just those kinds of things. And I understand that people wanna, you know, take precautions. I am certainly, for me, who was a person who committed fraud less likely to commit fraud now than I was before? So, someone who hired me before I had a felony was taking a bigger chance than they are now. Anyway, you know, so kind of like that. But, um, and then I think understanding addiction, abuse, and neglect um, so, so many of the women I met came from long histories of poor education, neglected, non- neglect, and really abusive situations physically, emotionally, sexually. And so some of them come by their crimes, really, honestly, in my opinion. And to be aware of, you know, what um, addiction, neglect and abuse causes. I mean, do you know where the domestic violence shelters are in a community? How? What can you do to help women who are being abused or, like, put, you know, not tolerate that kind of... And a lot of at uh, people in my world in the middle, you know, I'm a white middle class person. I don't have a lot of interface with poor whites or other races that I can try and do that more. I can try and go into those communities or be aware of those communities and, and think of how I might be more supportive or even just in my dialogue about them, not just be like, oh yeah, those people out in Kentucky, blah, blah, blah. Those are real people. Those are people who are my friends now. You know, those people are really trying to make a life and I think understanding the lack of education and resources they have before they go in uh, could perhaps do some preventative. So that's kind of, I guess, what I wanted to talk about. And I think there are people, if you are a lawyer or a social worker and you want to go into prison reform, that would be awesome. (laughs) You know, like I think you can actually be even more involved. But if you're just like a person who's not going to become a defense attorney, shout out to my defense attorney, by the way. I love you, Paul. You did a great thing for me. And I think that defense attorneys are awesome (laughs) and people really do need them. And it's not just about the guy who committed murder. It's about all kinds of crimes and people need to have good defenses and understand what they're signing and what they're getting into. And I think if you really do want to take the bull by the horns, I mean, there's a lot of organizations that are trying to create prison reform and I'm trying to learn more about them. And there are tons of books. Obviously people know about just mercy and they've read that. And that's a great one. I've read it too. There's um, a book called locked in there's the Mars room. I think that's coming out in a movie soon. Um, what's the other one that's fairly? Oh, the new Jim Crow. If we want to talk about racism, and I'm not an expert in talking about racism, but the new Jim Crow is a really good book about how prison impacts um, Black communities much deeper than others, and and it's almost like the new way of a new form of slavery or the new Jim Crow laws, this incarceration and reading that book, I think could be helpful, but recognizing that we are not all punished the same. And that's, there's a strong racial bias in how that happens. And again, I, I'm not an expert in racism, but there's certainly um, minorities are getting longer sentences, getting prosecuted more. And that's not right. So.
1: Yeah. I've done a lot of reading last year that points to that as well, that we really are treating Uh, young black men or young black women on the same standard um, of punishment and sentencing and consequences as we do with a young white male or young white female. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to, I want to wrap up kind of with a last question and and it parse it out maybe into two little pieces. One is that a listener was asking about, were you you able to maintain your sense of individuality? Were you able to maintain your sense of worth uh, while serving your time? So let's start there. Where did you feel like you were able to maintain that?
2: Um, I feel like I was, at least on individuality, um, I was different in many ways from people. I also had a lot of people writing to me from the outside. So I stayed really connected. So thanks friends. Um, you can maintain your individuality if you want to. Um, and people do a lot to try and be different. The worth part I think is harder because the longer you're there, the, I think you feel less and less. Like a human, you feel less and less like a person who can actually you know, like, do something, have a dream, have initiative, because your initiative doesn't get you anywhere. So I think worth is a, is a harder thing for prisoners because they're, they just bang their head against the wall all the time. And so they start to feel like, what good is it? I can't get anywhere. I can't do anything. I can't have a dream. I can't better myself. I'm in here for so many years. And so I think that is probably the harder piece. Individuality, I think, is a little bit better because there are different ways to individuate yourself. But the worth piece, and the longer you're there, obviously, the the harder it is, I think, to hold your sense of worth, intrinsic worth. And also part of that is like expressions of creativity, expressions of goals, expressions of future. Those things are sort of sucked away from you bit by bit.
1: Yeah, And then the second part of this listener's question, which we'll end with, which is if you could change two things about the way the, the prison system works, um, what, what are your thoughts on those two changes? Is there, is there something that comes to mind that you're like, man, if we could just do this thing, it would just make a night and day difference.
2: <laughs> I definitely think if you could improve the level of respect between the staff and the guards and the and the prisoners and have a – have the infantilization go away, have a level of respect where they're working in the community where it's modeling a greater level of respect. I think that would go a long way because you're going to, then you're going to be able to step away from manipulative behaviors, lying behaviors, worthless behaviors. And you're just saying, Hey, we're in here, you're in charge. Let's make the best of this and treat each other with a level of respect. I think that would be go a long way. And, um, inability, I mean, and ability to give, I would say, prisoners resources, like accurate resources that they could help themselves would be the two things. And I've oh, already talked about them.
1: I love it. I love it. And, and here we are, we've two hours in and we've gone over <laughs> a, a year of prison and kind of all the facets yep. that listeners were interested in that you wanted to talk about some questions that I wanted to add to, to, to have you kind of speak on. Um, I, I just think this is invaluable. I think people are first, uh, we're all interested in on this side of things in people whose lives have unique experiences and we can learn from those experiences and and unless we experience it ourselves we don't have a clue what goes on there so i think filling in voids of knowledge and helping us with information about what this looks like and how it works and then i think the other thing is if we're going to be compassionate human beings to understand the plight of other humans and to be able to now as you pointed out just a few minutes ago to be aware and to, in whatever little small ways we all can, because if we all do just a little tiny thing to make a difference, it, it, it ends up being monumental differences when you add it all up. I just want to say thanks. It was a, it's a lot of fun. I, I, I appreciate you Suzette and consider you a, a friend. And, um, and I was excited to have the conversation where we talked about what this experience was like. And I think listeners will find this invaluable.
2: Thank you so much. Thanks for letting me just share about some people that, other people don't think about and let me tell some stories and it's good to see you too bill
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Love it, love it. Um, I'll clean this up, get it out. And uh, for the Almost Awakened listeners, just appreciate you tuning in today and uh, appreciate you uh, taking time to listen and hope that uh, future episodes are as exciting and entertaining uh, mm-hmm. as our conversation today with Suzette. So thanks so much, everybody. Uh, Suzette, have an awesome day. We'll do. Uh, we'll get this thing published and listeners, uh, see you guys next time. Okay. Please consider helping us keep this podcast alive by donating. You can do that by going to the website almostawakened.org there at the top of the page you'll see the donate button, click that and send a few dollars our way this takes lots of time and prep to do this
0: podcast but we're excited to do it, help us keep it going. This has been another Almost Awakened episode check us out at almostawakened.org where you can check out past episodes, make a donation to keep this podcast running, email us a question or comment or find out more about the resources shared in today's episode. For coaching opportunities or extra support, visit no to meet with certified spiritual director, Brittany Hartman.